Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Hello and welcome to the Disruptors at Work Integrated Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. And in today's episode, we will be focusing on the pandemic of mental health in the United States as a result of our year-long battle with COVID-19. Recently, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization focusing on national health issues, as well as the U.S. role in global health policy, recently published some emerging data on the profound effect of the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting economic recession. And so just to bullet point quickly, some of the data findings, the study from the Kaiser Family Foundation reports that about four in 10 or 40% of adults in the United States at this time have reported symptoms of anxiety or depression during the pandemic. Um, And that has been largely consistent, but it is up from about one in 10 adults prior to the pandemic. Um, So comparing from, uh, excuse me, January 2019 to January of 2020, a a pretty significant increase. Um, My specialty happens to be maternal mental health. And in moms, we are seeing an increase of between 29% of moms reporting anxiety symptoms to now 72%. So the effect of the pandemic has been very profound, especially on on moms um, and those who are caregiving um, and worried about those that they're caring for. Um, Additionally, a Kaiser Family Foundation poll uh, noted that many more adults are reporting other negative impacts on their mental health and well-being, such as difficulty sleeping, around 36% of adults, eating, 32% of adults, and we know about the huge increases in alcohol consumption and substance abuse that's been seen across, really, the globe. Um, And there are funny memes and videos about that, but we also know, um, you know, just we're talking with our population and um, between professionals that it's been tough and and coping with COVID has has definitely led some to cope in in, uh, negative or maladaptive ways. So as... um, the other, the other thing that's been um, reported across the board is worsening chronic conditions, and chronic pain is certainly one of those due to worry and stress over the coronavirus. So as the pandemic wears on, ongoing and necessary public health measures have exposed many people, including healthcare professionals, to experiencing situations linked to poor mental health outcomes, including isolation and job loss. So my guests today are Drs. Zachary Fisk and Christina Julian, who are partners at Acute Pain Therapies in Bellevue, Washington. During the pandemic, they have found themselves working significantly more often with psychiatrists and mental health professionals to treat depression. Today, we'll be talking about the impact the pandemic is having on people with pre-existing depression, the increase in patients coming to the acute pain therapies, offices who are seeking new treatments for clinical depression, and how they are combating the correlation between depression and chronic pain without the use of opioids. So Dr. Zachary Fisk 
has significant experience managing perioperative opioid use in spite Excuse me. His significant experience managing perioperative opioid use inspired him to specialize in effective non-opiate methods for treating severe pain, which is common to surgical procedures. And he has developed techniques while caring for patients suffering from acute surgical and traumatic pain and the psychological pain of depression. And one um, blog um, post on your website I was super interested in was the the uh, one focusing on phantom limb pain. Um, and that's something that has um, been an ongoing question that comes to us frequently here as, as integrated care specialists. Dr. Fisk specializes in perioperative nerve block and catheter placement, regenerative medicine for chronic pain in the region of the major joints, and peripheral nerve cryoablation and peripheral neuromodulation. He provides ketamine and lidocaine infusions for chronic pain and depression, and the FDA-approved esketamine nasal spray. Dr. Christina Julian joined Acute Pain Therapies in January of 2019, where she practices interventional chronic pain management and anesthesiology. She is board certified in both anesthesiology and pain medicine by the American Board of Anesthesiology. She earned her medical degree from West Virginia University, where she also completed her residency in anesthesiology. After completing her residency, she served as a faculty member at the WVU Department of Anesthesiology, managing high acuity intraoperative patients and participated in resident education and developed skills in regional anesthesia. So I just wanna thank you both, welcome you both. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about these concerning trends. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So Dr. Fisk, you've created um, a really impressive, what I like to call unicorn of a practice. Um, you're addressing the behavioral health components of chronic pain in a way that is very unusual for pain specialists. I have interacted with several here in the state of Arizona where I'm a resident and nationally, but most are really not tackling this issue of, of comorbid depression. So can you tell me about the observations that led you in your practice to identify the need for a multidisciplinary team? And what keeps you passionate about identifying and treating depression? Sure. The interesting thing about this practice, acute pain therapies, which is implied by the name, is that it was created with the idea of helping people with post-operative acute pain. That was its primary mission. And that kind of clinic really didn't exist, and still, for the most part, doesn't exist. Um, in many places in the country. Usually you're either in the hospital getting acute pain treatment for post-op pain, you go home, and then your surgeon um, kind of manages your pain from a distance. You ask for more pain pills, you get more pain pills. They check out for you at two weeks and then six weeks. And um, a lot of people can become addicted to opioids that way without this sort of um, transitionary pain clinic, as they're now calling it between the acute hospitalization and the chronic phase of pain. And so the mission of the clinic started with that concept in mind, where we would try to um, prevent people from becoming addicted to opioids as best we can, and to provide them other options usually only available in a hospital setting, such as nerve catheter placement, um, trend, weaning down opioids actively as a, a separate provider doing that. Uh, other means of treating pain that might normally not be adequately treated by a, a surgical post-op team, like 
nerve pain, for example, which is much different and harder to treat than just um, standard nociceptive post-surgical pain. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the clinic already always had that unique focus. And one method that one can use to treat post-op pain is uh, one, one drug that you, you can use to treat post-op pain, especially nerve pain, is ketamine. And it's especially effective in opioid-tolerant patients. And it can treat certain complications of um, surgical pain or surgery, such as CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. So it was an obvious um, segue to utilize ketamine in the context of post-op pain. But in so doing, um, you know, one becomes a, an expert in all aspects of a medication when they use it a lot. And so ketamine turns out to be an extremely effective antidepressant. And um, I have found that patients benefit substantially from ketamine if they manifest any sort of um, depressive response to their pain. Mm -hmm. And those, uh, those two conditions are... Um, uh, so closely linked that you really can't adequately address one without addressing the other in some fashion. Ketamine serves both purposes in some sense. It can treat pain and it can treat depression. And of course, it's a tool in a toolbox. It is not a panacea. There are problems with its use. It needs to be used in a judicious and uh, um, adroit or expert manner. But um, I found that in patients where they say, look, I don't know what else to do. We try ketamine. We might use some adjunctive treatments along with ketamine, like adding lidocaine infusions into the mix. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they can achieve a better quality of life. Even though their pain isn't resolved, their condition isn't resolved, they're better able to cope with their pain, painful condition. And that's, um, that's sometimes the biggest part of chronic pain is learning how to deal with it, knowing that it won't ever completely go away. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, at, in our program, the Dr. Behavioral Health Program, we offer a chronic pain course, and it was developed by um, a husband-wife team, a, a chronic pain surgeon, and his wife, who is a doctor of behavioral health. Um, and so our, our students are very familiar with the link between depression and, and anxiety and chronic pain and with some of the behavioral health interventions that are um, available to really treat the underlying causes, some, some of which are very psychological and, and trauma in, um, in nature. So I'm just curious, um, you know, with the, with the hugely rising rates of anxiety and depression nationally, how have things changed in your patient population since March of 2020? Do you want to take that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's interesting. We live in a, a unique bubble out here in the Pacific Northwest. We have a huge tech industry, mm -hmm. Microsoft, Amazon. Um, and um, the patient population, has, certainly with the pandemic, has become more secluded, but they've been able to, some of the, a lot of a lot of them have been able to continue to work from home or work remotely. I would say that the, the major um, the people that I see that are most depressed are the ones in other occupations that um, where they they have had to stay at home. They've had major financial difficulties, um, and certainly we we get um, we get inquiries all the time from. All sorts of folks, including you know people in the tech industry, but I would say more commonly I've seen the depression really ramp up in those people that have been isolated and unable to work, uh, where their life has been upended both financially and socially. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in terms of how people are dealing with their chronic pain, I would, it, it, I, we've definitely noticed a trend to, um, you know, what we call pain catastrophizing mm-hmm. and, um, uh, which is, which is a concept where you just can't cope with pain at all anymore. It's just everything in your life is turning upside down and now you have this pain. It's sort of like a, the last straw, you know, and so people become extremely depressed, extremely anxious. Um, I, I've definitely noticed it. Well, what have you, have you seen similar gen, trends in your patients, in your chronic pain patients? Yes. Yeah, I would agree that, um, you know, the, the social, uh, what's happening in a patient's life socially and personally um, definitely plays uh, a huge role in their perception of their chronic pain. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely seen a, an uptick in, uh, in that. And that's obviously very hard to treat. Opioids and other yeah. uh, chronic pain medications don't, don't treat that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a more of a mental component than a physical component. So, um, I've seen similar trends. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, um, pain catastrophizing and, you know, of course, psychologically, we also talk a lot with patients about catastrophizing in life. And so what you're seeing is patients who are catastrophizing life and also catastrophizing the pain symptomatology that they have. So this, this stacking effect of, um, crisis, you know, going off, um, really affects the amygdala, um, the alert center, you know, sending both pain signals and alarm signals, traumatizing, literally bathing the brain, um, in this, everything is falling apart. The sky is falling on chicken little, um, situation. So I'm wondering, you know, just from both of your observations, um, and, you know, this is a question that I, I like to ask from a healthcare perspective, have you found it more stressful, you know, just to do your jobs? Um, and, and how about your, your team um, at the clinics? Have they found it more stressful in the past year? Because when we treat people who are in more crisis, we tend to experience more stressors and, and it's hard not to take work home, home with us. Yeah, it's definitely more stressful. Um, kind of the short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's been more stressful, not only because the patients have been catastrophizing more and mm-hmm. there's more depression going around, but also just the pandemic, you know, itself has put a lot of, um, of added pressure on the clinic and, um, just as far as sterility goes and everybody's nervous mm-hmm. about catching the virus. And, um, so there have been, you know, there are multiple things this over the past year that, that have added to that. Um, mm-hmm. we try to, create a positive work environment, right? We're always here to help each other. We really promote teamwork um, and we promote good communication. So if any of our um, employees are, you know, struggling or just feeling overwhelmed, um, we try to be cognizant and, you know, recognize that um, quickly so that we can, you know, do what we can to adjust the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our, at, at the same time as all of this started, we, we were in an expansionary phase as it was. So, we moved, there was a delay in construction. We expanded our team from like, you know, basically by 100% over the, the last um, year or so. So it's been a, a little bit of uh, extra weight on our shoulders because of that. We had signed a lease sure. right before, you know, a few months prior to the pandemic, a 10 year lease. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but uh, you know, luckily we're, we're sort of in an essential line of work. Ketamine is so effective in treating suicidal depression specifically that um, we were able to certainly justify staying open 
mm-hmm. keeping the business going. And, and acute pain, especially acute on chronic pain, for example, mm-hmm. um, is, is, is quite essential as well, especially our justification has always been if, if it keeps you out of the ER within the next couple of weeks, it's probably worth doing the shot because yeah. you're going to be exposed yeah. a lot more to a lot more people if you have to go to the emergency room. So we've been able to, to maintain our business and, um, and, uh, um, and actually there have been a couple more ketamine places popping up nearby. So it's, this sector, um, hasn't necessarily benefited, but it, it continues to, to, to do okay in these difficult times. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. In terms of my, you know, my, Dr. Julie and I were talking the other day, that we, we certainly chose, we chose a natural line of work where you're always treating people in an unhappy stage of their life. No, we're not wedding planners, mm-hmm. here, you know, and that can get on, <laughs> that can grate on one's um, soul a little bit. But, you know, mm-hmm. on the other side of it, when you do a good job, you feel good about it and you feel like you're, you're, you're important. So, so uh, it helps. And, and we try to be very accommodating and, and um, understanding with our staff, um, while at the same time trying to keep the business afloat. It's a, it's a, there's sure. a fine line as, a, as managers. Um, and that actually, for both her and I, probably the management side <clears throat> this year <clears throat> has been harder than the healthcare side. Oh yes. Always happy and um, yeah. working well together. Um, it's that's been actually probably the biggest challenge for us. Yeah, I I have found it interesting. Um, so managing healthcare teams and then managing higher education teams have you know both of those experiences during pandemics have taught me a lot more about being in a leadership role as a human being. Um, and I've definitely, I mean, I, I'm a therapist with 25 years of experience. I've been in the behavioral health field for most of my life. So helping people and human behavior and communication are things that I went to school specifically for. And yet I still found that there were new skills that I needed to learn in, in caring for a, a team of humans who is trying to get through a very difficult thing when we're all in this situation together with no real mm-hmm. end in sight. Um, yeah. Have you learned yeah, have you like, felt that a, way too? There's, there's a leadership podcast that I like called the Jocko Willink podcast. I don't know if okay. you've heard of that. It's I haven't. And okay. his podcast is all about leadership. And so I, 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 well, I tune in sometimes. And, mm-hmm. uh, but he, I don't think his style would work very well with <laughs> some of my employees. Although uh-huh. it is a universal universal skill to, to, to lead properly. There, mm-hmm. it's a tech, there are techniques to leadership like anything else. And the only way you get better is if you practice those techniques, like anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one can definitely train to become a good leader, but um, uh, uh, you, need, you need a certain personality and a certain touch, and you have to adapt mm-hmm. those skills to your particular way of being. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I'm not very confrontational at all, so I have to overcome that mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. How about you, yeah, Dr. Julian? I see you nodding. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little bit more to the point. Uh-huh. Just hit, hit the nail on the head. You know, let's get this over yeah. with. Yeah. This is business, not personal. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and I've I've found that that um and I I don't know, you know, this is just kind of but I've always been that, you know, let's just get to the point, get business done. It's it's better if you just tell someone so that, you know, if they don't know what it is, they can't fix it. So if you let them know what it is, they can fix it. But I've also received the feedback that that can be 
too aggressive. And so, you know, I try, I have, I have learned over the years, some, some ways of connecting before providing that feedback. Um, and also, you know, ways to maybe soften the feedback so that the point is still received, but that it is less of a, um, I guess a, a defensive response. Yeah. It's how you say it. It's not necessarily what you say. That's what I've learned. Yeah. And I think it's the relationship that you have with um, the people that you work with as well, because, you know, if you have that trusting mutual respect built anyway, then you're in a better position to provide sometimes uncomfortable feedback or a, hey, this is not okay and we need to fix it. We need to move forward. So, so tell me a little bit about what attracted both of you to this specialty um, and and also, you know, what what kind of turned you in the direction of a more integrated approach? Um, so we're both anesthesiologists by training. Um, one of the subspecialties of anesthesiology is pain. It's, it's, it's chronic pain and acute pain. So we kind of each chose um, one of those two pathways. Um, the chronic pain pathway, um, any acute pain pathway, it's very procedure oriented. Um, a lot of injections, a lot of nerve blocks and joint injections and steroid injections and other procedures that help with chronic pain. Um, you know, in the chronic pain realm, it's rarely one. Um, there's rarely one procedure or one medication or one treatment that's going to help the overall patient, right? That's going to help the whole picture. So, you know, um, in chronic and acute pain, you really have to have a, um, a multidisciplinary approach to treating the pain, right? That could include physical therapy, massage therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, in combination with some medications and, and some injections and procedures, um, I think it's also incredibly important to, you know, set a, um, a benchmark for the patient. Uh, there's not one magic pill that's going to make everything better. Uh, this procedure is not going to help 100% of your pain, but if we can help 60% of your pain, make you more functional, um, make your, you know, your pain more tolerable, then that's a win, right? And so by, by using a multimodal approach, we can use different modalities that each contribute um, a small percentage, right, to helping the overall picture. So um, sometimes that's a little bit of a sell with patients. You yeah. really have to, um, you know, get them to buy into that. Um, but, um, you know, it's pretty uh, reasonable patients are, you know, pretty accepting of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you said it's it's a bit of a sell. I, I, I bet you do a lot. I, I bet you spend a lot of time in, in your appointments educating and, and really helping people who do think they're coming in for one procedure, it's going to cure their pain. They're going to come mm -hmm. in one time. That's it forever. And if they have that expectation, they're setting themselves up for a lot of disappointment. Absolutely. I am all about setting reasonable expectations. I always tell patients, this is not going to help 100% of your pain. Mm -hmm. um, this may, One injection may not be enough. You might need two or three because I, I if you set people up for a certain, you know, certain expectation, you know, you're, you're never going to meet that. So I try to be incredibly reasonable um, um, with what I, with my approach and with what I offer them and, you know, with, with what the um, possible outcomes could be. Mm -hmm. In terms of how I got here, sort of a convoluted pathway, but in college I was an economics major and then I was also pre-med and I decided um, I would apply to medical school and got accepted to a combined MD MBA program and I was just thinking you know what would I do I remember where I was I was laying on the top of a bunk bed 
um, in my in my dorm room and thinking, what would I do? And I thought I would um, go into medicine and then use the insider knowledge I have as a uh, a doctor to invest in like uh, angel investments, and like, mm-hmm. which is very early stage venture capital. I thought that that would be my pathway. Mm-hmm. So I went and got this combined MBA MBA program, and then in terms of medicine, I, I thought anesthesia was kind of the coolest of all the specialties. That brief procedures, intense interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we both kind of really like that aspect of it. And then once I was in anesthesia, I um, I, I really enjoyed the satisfaction of, of um, getting people out of post-operative pain. And I enjoyed the procedure itself with the ultrasound-guided nerve blocks. But they're really interesting. And then uh, I went and I worked, um, uh, you know, at a standard sort of academic place for a while. But um, I didn't really like that environment. And I mm-hmm. wanted to, and I felt like, I, I always felt like um, I wanted to, to do something a little bit more exciting or build something. Mm-hmm. And so this idea came to mind when I was managing an acute pain service that I had built. And um, uh, I, I'm never, I'm not the most risk averse person. I don't mind taking a little bit of risk uh-huh. and taking a little less traveled, as, as Robert Frost um, mm-hmm. uh, poem is all about. So I, that's sort of where I, how I ended up here. And I wanted to use my business skills somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the venture capital thing was sort of a pipe dream that, that required um, like connections that I didn't have. So, But I thought this would be a really interesting way to capitalize on the, that business part. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, my, my sister is a veterinarian and, and I'm in behavioral health. And my sister, you know, as a veterinarian, you're both sort of a primary care physician and you also are a surgeon. And so you have to do it all for any animal that, you know, happens to come in the door. And my sister usually says, you know, it's the, it's the people that are the most problematic and take up the most of my time. If I could just, you know, and my patients can't tell me where it hurts, you know? And, and so I wonder if that's part of your practice as well. Is it, is it hard because what you do and what you know how to do is so very complicated and important and technical and I'm wondering if sometimes it's hard to deal with the the personal interactions and, and the individuals who need a lot of the education or who need, you know, a lot of emotional help and support without a behavioral health person in the appointment with you so that you could say, well, it looks like you're connecting really well with Dr. English. I'm going to go to my next patient now. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely um with some patients, it can be very time consuming, you know, mm-hmm. but that it's part of kind of building that trusting relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's worth that time investment, especially when it's someone new to me or that I'm kind of just starting to see. Um, and they really almost kind of rely on us like primary care doctors because we see our patients fairly frequently every one to two months. Um, so you really develop that relationship. So I think, you know, anytime you're investing time in explaining and educating a patient, um, I think it always pays off in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, you know, we're anesthesia trained. We're not... Um... We don't love extended conversations about personal <laughs> feelings, you know. Exactly, and, exactly. You know, uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, we like interacting with people, but you know, we're not therapists. And so, actually, one of our one of my requirements, not only because I don't, you know, that's not my chosen profession, but because it's mm-hmm. vital, is I always require all patients have a psychiatric professional mm-hmm. uh, who, if they're undergoing uh, de- treatment for depression, anxiety, PTSD, mm-hmm. etc. 
they, they, we, we require that they have a psychiatric professional in the background. Occasionally, ketamine makes people um, uh, either a little manic afterwards if they're prone to bipolar, not, not, not usually, but there, or it can cause some uh, PTSD issues to, to flare up. And so even though we treat PTSD with ketamine, so it's important or it can increase anxiety. It can do different things that a psychiatric professional in the background is very good at, very useful for managing. So um, that's we actually respect that profession a lot and know that we're not cut out for those long therapy sessions. Well, and, and that's the strength of the, the multidisciplinary team. You know, there therein lies the strength because we each need to be able to work at the top of our license and rely on one another to do what we like to do and what we went to you know, years and years of training to do best. Um, and so that that's one of the things that I love so much about the integrated care approach is for, when you are able to work shoulder to shoulder with other professionals and other specialties, the patient's experience is so much better. Their outcomes are so much better. And the relationship with the patient to the team seems to usually be a lot better as well. Yeah, so, I'm curious about, you know, tell me a little bit about what um, makes a good candidate for uh, for ketamine infusions. The most common thing we treat here is treatment refractory depression, which is depression that hasn't responded to a myriad of medication trials before. And when somebody is treatment refractory, they have multiple, they have a few options. They can try uh, ketamine. They could try even more medications. They could try TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. They could try ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. They could try uh, aggressive psychotherapy and, and even more options that I'm not listing. But those are generally the most, in, in my realm, what, what I see patients try the most often. And there's the advantage of ketamine is it's um, generally about six infusions over two to three weeks to stabilize the effect of each an hour long. And then a booster infusion, on average, once every three to five weeks to maintain the effect. Okay. Single hour long booster infusion. During the infusion, you can feel unpleasant things like nausea, or if you don't like the way that ketamine makes you feel, um, it can be problematic for patients. So we have methods for um, making them feel better, uh, like usually medication-based methods for making them tolerate the infusions better. Mm-hmm. Outside of those infusions, there tends to be no side effects, almost mm-hmm. at all. Um, sometimes if we do the super high dose infusions for complex regional pain syndrome or other pain conditions requiring very high dose, long five hour infusions, they could have side effects, uh, usually post anesthesia, sort of loopiness or grogginess or even dissociation for a few days afterwards, because it takes a while for ketamine, which is very lipophilic, which means it glomps on your fat cells to get out of your body, especially if you do that super high dose. But for the short infusions for depression, we, we don't really see any side effects once the uh, anesthetic effect resolves after the ketamine. That's a major advantage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and also compared to the other options like TMS, um, there's a time-saving advantage to ketamine because you only need six stabilization infusions up front and then booster infusion usually once every three to five weeks. With TMS, you got to do like 60 treatments or something, 30 right. to 60 treatments it is very uh, every day. Mm-hmm. And then Same you have, uh, a, a, and then you have a, 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 a. I don't actually understand quite what the booster phase looks like after that, but mm-hmm. that's pretty time consuming. But it is also very low low side effect profile. And then there's ECT. ECT is kind of a more daunting process. It can be very effective and, and it should be utilized in certain cases, but it can cause memory troubles. Mm-hmm. 
uh, things like that. And so um, we find that for treatment of fractured depression, it's sort of the least invasive means and least time-consuming means of, of attempting to treat that. Ketamine can also be used for PTSD, and there's been studies, especially in the veteran, uh, the vet population, um, uh, the veteran population, to show that it it actually is quite helpful for that. We do find that PTSD patients respond pretty well to it, on, uh, usually. Can help anxiety variably. Which anxiety's always. I've never. I, I think I met a couple of patients who said they don't have anxiety. That also that have depression, but most yeah, it's depressed pretty common. I usually say it's it's two sides of the same coin. If there's depression, yeah. there's usually anxiety. Yeah, and the ketamine may not address all the anxiety issues, even if their depression improves, which generally translates to uh, ablation of suicidal thinking, improved motivation, improved energy levels, improved uh, social interaction with people, maybe better sleep or better appetite. But they might still be hypervigilant or 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 nervous or. or or have difficulty with panic attacks and things like that. So ketamine, and it, ketamine can help those things. It's really hard to predict if it will or not. Mm-hmm. And I would say the major indications are treatment refractory patients who have tried other things mm-hmm. and they want to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. Ketamine seems like a reasonable option in that situation. Yeah. And I, you know, it, it's interesting that you are seeing such great results with ketamine because, you know, from the from the treatment perspective of, therapists who, who most of them know primarily how to do talk therapy, you know, so using the technology of cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapies. Um, but many people have a hard time when a patient isn't making any progress. And as we know, there are individuals, especially those with more complex conditions, including chronic pain and PTSD, who really are going to max out how much treatment effect they're able to get from talk therapy. Um, And so, you know, having the ability to send them for consultation, you know, with individuals and and specialists who can really talk that talk about whether or not they'd be a good candidate for this. um, I'm sure it must feel kind of life saving for the patients who come in to see y'all. I always give them numbers. You know, I feel like um, these patients are desperate. If you don't give them concrete numbers and just say it might work, you know, with the shot, then they're like, of course, they're going to go for it. But if they have a more concrete number, then they at least have something definitively to say it has an X percentage chance of working. Mm-hmm. Like for certain chronic pain conditions, like end-stage arthritic pain, old, uh, old, old person coming in with end-stage arthritic pain, like it was ketamine the thing for me. If I say, yeah, it could work, they probably want to try it. But the likelihood of it actually helping those kinds of people is probably 1 in 20. Oh. Like very low chance that it helps long-term. Mm-hmm. Just for pure arthritis. And I think that number is much more honest than saying, oh, it could work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Well, could <laughs> in a <laughs> 1 to 20 ratio versus, exactly. you know, could in a but 1 in 5 ratio, you know, you're, you're talking about. Depression, really... well, like 70 to 80 percent chance. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's huge. I mean, any any yeah. patient coming into talk therapy has to know that, you know, the range of effectiveness is, is anywhere between 20 and 80 um, percent right. you know, for, for any cognitive behavioral therapy, ACT, anything else that we might have to offer in the office. And so I think being able to be very transparent with a person because they are a customer and they do need to decide how they're going to spend their time and their money um, and, you know, what treatment options they have as a patient, I would want to know what's the likelihood of this one being effective. Right. And sometimes we don't have the number. You kind of have to wing it based on experience. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. data, but, but oftentimes you can get close. 
Yeah. Well, even if you can give them a percentage of likelihood within your own practice, I think that right. is great. So, and, and that's not always shared, um, but right. I think it is important. So um, what if somebody is interested in, in pursuing ketamine therapies, what would you encourage them to look for in a practice? Yeah. Um, so I would say um, having anesthesia leadership is quite useful because it just expands the range of things that can be done. Uh, I, you know, ketamine is a very safe drug on its own, but sometimes you need some extra sedation to mm -hmm. get people through, especially the high dose ones. And that's when an anesthesiologist can be very helpful in, in, mm -hmm. in guiding that experience. So mm -hmm. some anesthesia um, expertise. And for our, for example, in our clinic, we have two separate locations, which we may eventually combine into one. The separate location is not, doesn't have an anesthesia provider on site, but we only do the easy ones over there that don't require extra sedation and mm -hmm. very complex. I'd say anesthesia is quite important to them. Mm -hmm. um, that we try to get some insurance coverage, but that's pretty pretty rare. I wouldn't say that that's a requirement. It's really insurance these days is so different. We're not going to bother with that whole line of um, billing, but but we we do it, and I think that's valuable for a lot of people. And then you know we don't just do ketamine, so we don't need to oversell it or anything like that because we, mm -hmm. you know, we, I don't think it works. Usually there's something else that we can recommend, mm -hmm. and I also think good ties to the psychiatric community can be quite right. helpful. Like we. The majority of our patients actually come from psychiatrist referrals. Mm -hmm. You know, that's pretty, that's, that not only is it good to have those connections, but it's also um, reassuring. I, I would be reassured as a patient if I knew the psychiatrist referring to this place mm -hmm. for, for the treatments. They have confidence that we'll do a good job. Absolutely. Dr. Julian, anything to add? Um, in addition to ketamine infusions, we also sometimes do lidocaine infusions, um, which can be a, a modality to help with chronic neuropathic pain or CRPS type pain. Um, so sometimes we even, you know, experiment and do a combination of, of, of ketamine and lidocaine. And there's some data on that. It's not just experimental. There's actually some, like a, some, a group in Canada put out a big retrospective study looking at um, their protocol for combining ketamine and lidocaine. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's useful to have to for providers to have a, a um, sort of a um, a wide range of, of disciplines right. to you know to not pigeonhole into just doing ketamine. Sure, absolutely. Well, and I, and I'm thinking about you know for for many of the patients that I've worked with with uh, treatment related you know what we call treatment resistant depression, many of them would be looking at adding you know, two or more. So you're looking at polypharmacy and anytime you add a second medication, you're looking at, you know, the, a pretty big risk of drug interactions as well as, you know, adverse side effects. And so many patients are looking for an option that has fewer side effects. And, and with the data that you're seeing and the experience that you're seeing with so few side effects or maybe no side effects, um, waking is a huge one in, in my population. You know, many women who come in and they're having postpartum depression, you know, they're already dealing with baby weight that they don't want that's making them feel less mobile, less able to do, you know, what they used to do prior to pregnancy. Um, and so I can definitely see, you know, for those women who are having PTSD and some chronic pain and, and you know, some chronic depression issues all, all combined and stacked you know, the odds against them for complete recovery being interested in this treatment option. Yeah, and um, ketamine definitely interacts with the estrogen receptor. 
and there was a, there's some discussions at the last ketamine um, symposium about what the best time to treat you know um, a patient is within the menstrual cycle postpartum. Mm -hmm. It's ongoing. We don't know the answer, but um, that's certainly an area of research that is uh, important. And a lot of people that come to me with persistent depression after their initial postpartum depression episode will get some relief with ketamine. Mm -hmm. That's really good to reason. hear. Um, and and I think that you know the emerging research in into the interaction with or you know the the relationship to the point in the menstrual cycle is very interesting because that's one of the things that makes it more complicated or more complex from a psychiatric perspective to work with women because the hormonal influence is all over the place and it's unique to every individual that you treat and so you know it's 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 easier to treat a person who doesn't have a cycle of hormonal influence that is unpredictable so even having a, a predictable cycle is not common for every woman. Um, so I can see that being a real um, advantage to this type of treatment too, and also to the research into that area. Yeah, men are tricky in a different way. I once told a guy, I always, I used to say, don't watch Game of Thrones whilst on ketamine. And of course, <laughs> a tough guy decided to do just that. He did fine. Oh, he took the challenge. He took the challenge. Okay. <laughs> and what and what were what are your reasons for advising him against that? Yeah, actually, in our clinic, what we do is we have we have projectors and we project nat nature scenes on the wall. Mm -hmm. This is Julie, Dr. Julian's brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. We used, in our old clinic we just have a mural of a nice nature scene, which is static. But now we can kind of choose what we want to see. Mm -hmm. um, and we find that the environment in which ketamine is experienced is um, very important to how the patient does if it's a loud place they don't have much privacy if they don't have if they're exposed to unpleasant scenes or or whatnot then they could have that that can influence how they experience ketamine which is derived from lsd so it has some hallucinogenic properties so we really try to optimize that aspect of the treatment as well yeah i can't imagine being in a, a loud busy non-private you know kind of a place to to have that type of treatment it, it, it seems be, like you're hitting the nail on the head, you know, with, with really trying to increase comfort and relaxation and provide calming, soothing visualization during an yeah. infusion. It cost okay. a lot to set that up. I drove my, my staff crazy with that because I wanted it oh. just right. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet, I bet it was, I bet it was really difficult. So tell me a little bit about your environment. What does it look like for a patient? And the actual clinic or? Yeah. And so when they come in, I've, I've seen on your website, you know, the front office, it's a, it's a beautiful space. It's very open, the colors and, you know, just the, the um, furniture and the, and the furnishings are very relaxing and soothing and also yeah, very no. Pacific Northwest, you know, here in Arizona, we're very Southwest. So you're going to see a lot of Adobe and, you know, the reds and the, and the beiges, but, um, but yours was really pretty with some blues and grays and, you know, some, nature um tones but i'm wondering what the ketamine infusion rooms are like and and what the other rooms are like as well yeah dr julian actually designed the whole kind of uh, chose much of it so she did well it's beautiful all the time thank you we'll be providing um, a link to your website to make sure that anyone watching or listening can can okay. use the link to view your website as well yeah so what does it look like for a patient walk, walk kind of walk me through um, you know, how they would come in for their first appointment um, to sure. receive an infusion. 
Well, we have the standard COVID precautions like temperature checks, uh, chairs, certain chairs blocked off, and the plastic screens, the questionnaire. Um, but aside from that impersonal um, stuff, we uh, basically they come in, they check in, and they can wait in the waiting room. Um, they come for the first infusion. They'll come in. They'll be escorted to their one of their private rooms. Um, it's the rooms have, um, like you said, blues and grays, and these projectors that show the nature scene on the wall. And a little iPad where they can listen to music from our iPad with um, a music program we have where they can bring their own. They were encouraged to bring all their blankets, their own blankets, stuff. Um, our COVID policy restricts family members from staying um, unless it's absolutely insisted upon. Um, which is usually fine. It's actually it's a very personal experience for the patient, and mostly you're treating the family member when you let them stay, rather than the patient. Um, uh, and so it, that COVID policy doesn't really affect things too much. Right. And they get an IV. They get. They, I come in. I talk to them. I reiterate the plan of, you know, how many infusions they'll have up front, and then the need for stabilization, the percentage chance of it working, how many infusions they'll generally take. Where they we definitively know if they're a ketamine responder, any side effects they might expect. And after we've gone through all that, they sign a little consent form on our computer. Then they'll get the IV, they'll get the anti-nausea medicine, and then they'll start the infusion. Mm -hmm. And um, then my nurses are documenting vitals, checking on them constantly uh, throughout the hour. Then they so that initial upfront process takes about half an hour. If they have a standard one-hour infusion, that's another hour. And then they need to have about a half hour to recover. Once the ketamine's turned off, they get they're groggy. They come back around, and then um, we'll do we'll take out the IV and make sure that they know what to do for then coming in for the next one. Um, and then usually the family they always need to have a ride out of here. We don't sure. want to drive after ketamine. Absolutely. So get a full night's rest before operating heavy machinery or making important life decisions like buying cars because that has happened before, anecdotally. Oh, I can uh, imagine. My clinic where some guy after ketamine went out and bought a Maserati or something at a different pain clinic. So be careful about that. And, and no <laughs> recollection of doing that or, or was unhappy once, usually he, ketamine, once he... Yeah, usually ketamine does not stop your memory from functioning after mm -hmm. it, it's over. But certain relaxing medicines that we give on the same day can sure. make your memory go away. So I don't know. I, it wasn't my patient, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the typical experience. Okay, thank you for that. And I think it's important, you know, I have a lot of patients, especially moms, um, you know, suffering from postpartum depression who would want to know exactly step by step what it's going to be like for me because they want to know when will I be able to respond to my child again? You know, when am I going to be able to get back to my normal life again? Um, and so I can imagine them having a lot of questions about that. So I, I hope that would be, you know, something that the information that you provided, I think would be very reassuring, um, you know, to know that yes, they, they need a driver, but, you know, having a good night's sleep is something, of course, not many moms, especially new moms get. Um, but you know, it sounds just in the environment itself, it sounds so therapeutic, you know, how many of us really, you know, take two hours to care for ourselves and be cared for for two hours and then, you know, ensure that we have a good night's sleep. So I can imagine that being extremely therapeutic in addition to the infusion. Yeah, it can help with sleep. Not always going to help with sleep, but it can. And then if the patient is breastfeeding, that's another interesting conundrum. We usually refer them to MFM, which is maternal fetal yeah. medicine, to make mm -hmm. sure that that's safe mm -hmm. with, with respect to ketamine. 
You know, I, I attend a lot of, of continuing education through Postpartum Support International, lots of psychopharmacology, um, continuing educa education. And from, from what I've heard, um, most of the research indicates that um, using a pump and dump kind of strategy is usually pretty effective for moms who are breastfeeding. Um, but don't quote me on that. I certainly haven't looked specifically for ketamine and would always, you know, want to have a person checking in with an MFM or at least a, a psychiatrist who's who's very well informed about lactation and an infusion. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, so a, one kind of a big question that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, just other strategies or other observations that you've had in, in addressing the opioid crisis. I'm sure that you get lots of questions and lots of patients who either are on opioids and they'd really like to not be, or have, you know, developed tolerance and, and need to continue, but, you know, ultimately would have liked to have never developed the, the tolerance or dependence in the first place. Um, what are some of the emerging solutions that, that you've been seeing or that you, you know, have been talking about together or, or that you're using as a practice to, to address um, or help patients with those concerns? Um, I'll, I'll address this question. Um, again, it kind of goes back to the multimodal approach to treating chronic pain. You know, we try to do injections um, um, and procedures that might help get down their, their daily opioid requirements. Um, definitely the addition of adjunct medications that might um, help with different pain pathways, not necessarily the opioid pain pathway, um, like a gabapentin or a Lyrica that might help with more nerve pain. I think setting, again, setting reasonable expectations when patients come to our clinic. Um, it's really hard, I think, to treat those patients that come that are on incredibly high doses of opioids. Um, we do see some of them, but we really try to, um, we're trying to be more interventional focused and less medication focused, but we do have still, you know, a, a many a numbers of of, of long-term chronic uh, opioid patients. Um, we set realistic expectations. With that patient population, you have to have very strict rules, and the CDC has kind of outlined um, the rules for managing patients on chronic opioids. There has to be a pain contract. You have to do urine drug screens at a minimum annually, more frequently if you feel that's necessary. We have them do screening questionnaires um, to assess their levels of depression and anxiety and make sure they aren't suicidal. And mm -hmm. um, so we follow all of those rules. Um, I think that we also try to make it very clear up front that, you know, we're not a high dose clinic. We're not going to escalate your doses. Um, if that's something that you're looking for, this is probably not the right fit for you. Um, if patients are on high doses, we try to wean if we can, or we try to switch. You know, maybe if we switch to a different medication, um, they could have, uh, you know, equal or even improved efficacy at a similar or even at a lower dose, because when you're on opioids for a long period of time, tolerance develops. And so the same dose um, of a medication that you have been taking doesn't have the same efficacy. So sometimes by simply switching from one opioid to another, we can get a better effect at the same or lesser lesser of a dose. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of tricks and things that we can do. Um, one of the big uh, medications that we started using is buprenorphine. Um, it is an opioid, but it has a little bit less um, addiction uh, and abuse potential. Um, so sometimes we'll wean patients down on other opioids and switch them to buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is interesting, too, because it's um, there's a patch formulation of buprenorphine, which is approved for pain, lower dose patch. But the pill form is not approved for pain. It's only approved for addiction. And so sometimes you got to jump through some hoops right. to get right. it approved for pain. It works just fine for pain up to a certain point. But 
it's very safe medication to use and very effective in patients who um, who need some amount of opioid because it actually it, it has a what we call a partial agonist effect. So it mm-hmm. gives you a, a decent amount of pain relief up to a certain point. Beyond that, it won't give you any more relief. But at the same time, if you take an opioid while you're on it, you can't overdose on that opioid. Yeah. So it won't let you, um, it won't let patients overdose. So for patients, and especially in our realm, where a lot of patients are depressed, suicidal, it's a, it's a very reassuring medication if we get them yeah. on it because we know that they're not going to, um, attempt suicide by overdose, mm-hmm. or it's going to be really challenging to do that. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm betting that you probably have a lot of, of support or that the patients who are switching to buprenorphine ha- are having a lot of support from family members who are terrified that about overdose potential. In a way, but it's uh, it's stigmatized medication in a way, Suboxone. No. Mm-hmm. Oh, those are given, that's given to heroin. Right. Heroin right. So the patient will oftentimes see that as the first thing when they Google Say, oh, wait a second. Why are you giving me this? I'm not an addict. I'm, I'm not a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, oh, actually, it can be difficult. They, patients oftentimes don't want their family to know that they're on that medication. It's the opposite of what you might think. Interesting. But it's, it's very valuable medication. And in fact, I, I work closely with a psychiatrist who believes it has antidepressant properties as well. <laughs> and so I'll get occasional referral from a psychiatrist in the community who believes that buprenorphine, who wants me to try a low-dose opioid for antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Because we're we're a facility that is able to achieve that. And I, I always yeah. refer those on to another psychiatrist I know who can do it. Sure. That's another thing that that is being researched. Is, mm-hmm. Are the opioids really helping pain, or are they actually helping depression? Right. Well, there's. I always say there's, there's so much more that we don't know than we do. And so with medications and, and, you know, with the ability to, to make an effort or, or follow a lead that we've, that we've observed from an effect that we're seeing, it's all about experience. It's all about being able to say, this seems to be having this effect. And then to be able to continue to work in that direction through, you know, clinical trials. Um, but of course, anytime you're talking about medications, especially those that are connected with addiction or drugs of abuse, there are so many, you know, layers of, of federal stop measures in place. Um, and, you know, some for good reason, but it, it also, um, it, it's frustrating as a provider, you know, when, when patients are not able to, um, you know, do a trial. So, so interesting that you mentioned that too, because, um, you know, for many patients who are treatment resistant to depression and have OCD, um, there are some excellent medications that are mood stabilizers. But if they Google them, of course, it comes up with bipolar and they're saying, I don't have bipolar. I don't have bipolar because if they think bipolar, they think the Joker. That's, that's the first thing that comes to their mind. Um, they have no other, you know, mania means, Oh, I'm a, I'm a criminal. I'm a, I'm a bad guy, you know, that I've seen on TV. It's, 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 um, really, really poorly misunderstood, poorly understood among the public. Um, so it sounds like no matter what, we've got a long way to go with education and, and communication and part, partnering with our, with our population. Indeed. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we could probably talk for a lot longer, but I've kept you an hour now. So um, I, I think, you know, just a final thought, if you could just say what's one thing that each of you wish uh, everybody in the United States knew about chronic pain and or depression. I think that it, it really takes a toll on the patient and on their family members. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's mentally and physically exhausting to 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 live with chronic pain um, and depression on a daily basis. And I think that people, um, you know, as with all mental illness, it's not a physical ailment. It's not visible. Um, so I think um, general population that doesn't deal with it doesn't um, doesn't really understand, you know, how how impactful it is to not only that per- that patient but their entire family. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like be kind. It's kind of the be kind. You never know what somebody's going through. Yeah, I would say most of what I do, I I consider a temporary therapeutic intervention that I can mm-hmm. repeat as needed. But in the end, it's up to the patient in a way, unfortunately, to find a solution for themselves. I can kind of guide them, but in large measure, well, what we do is um, it providing, that's why I kind of like the name acute pain therapies, because yeah. I feel like we're not, we very rarely can find something that's going to last forever. Mm-hmm. And we can repeat it, but in the end, that it, that's what's going to be required is repeating the intervention again and again. Right. Unless some other right. trick can be found to really help them. So it sounds like circling back again to that idea of really having the education and expectations that are realistic and also the partnership and building that relationship with you as the provider and, and you know, with the multidisciplinary team, understanding that there's no panacea, no one shot, that's going to fix everything, you know, be, be willing and open to working with um, specialties or with, you know, providers who really understand what you're going through and also, you know, are going to put in the time, but you've got to put the time in too as a patient. Exactly. Participate. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. It's really wonderful to meet you. Thank you for your work. It is critically, critically important. Um, I really just can't thank you enough. I've spoken and and worked with so many people who are really, really struggling and certainly in the past year hasn't made things easier. So Thanks for doing what you do and and for refueling yourselves and your team so that you can continue to do what you do. Great. Thank you very much for the time. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to interview with you. Appreciate it.